All right, uh, Isaiah chapter 48. What we find in Isaiah chapter 48 is it is a summary of the previous eight chapters. Uh, it's a culmination of the previous eight chapters. All the major themes in the previous eight chapters are kind of woven into one chapter. This is like uh, the Cliff Notes version of the previous eight chapters. It starts, uh, since it is a summary of 40 to 47, chapter 40 is also a significant chapter. Chapter 40 is an important turning point in all of Isaiah. Uh, this goes back to where we started with Isaiah back when, whenever we did, uh, began with Isaiah chapter 40 and the introduction to these last 27 chapters, how Isaiah is like a mini Bible. Uh, the first 39 chapters are kind of like the Old Testament. The last 27 chapters are kind of like the New Testament. There's 39 books of the Old Testament. There's 27 books of the New Testament. Isaiah is like all of the Bible wrapped up into one vision. One prophecy. So Isaiah is an important turning point as well. So let me back up even further. Isaiah chapters 31 to 39 are primarily, but not exclusively, words of judgment. Kind of like the Old Testament emphasizes what will not save sinners. Wiping out all of the sinners with a flood isn't going to solve our sin problem. Uh, providing man with animal sacrifices isn't, con- isn't going to solve the sin problem. Giving Israel his uh, holy commandments written on tablets of stone isn't going to solve our sin problem. Uh, raising up kings and prophets and judges isn't going to solve our king problem. So the Old Testament is primarily what isn't going to solve our problem. It doesn't mean there's no grace in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean there's no mercy or love in the Old Testament. But primarily, they're words of judgment. What will not work? Look at chapter 39 in your Bible. Look at how the this last section ends in Isaiah. I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 5. This clearly communicates how we'll call it the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament for the nation of Israel. It reads like this, chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you father shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. It ends in a word of judgment. Everything that you love, everything that you treasure, all that you enjoy is going to be taken away by Babylon. That's not going to happen for a a good hundred years. More than a hundred years. But that's how those first 39 chapters end. Chapters 40 to 66 are primarily words of comfort. Not exclusively. There's judgment in these chapters as well. But it changes mostly from what will not solve the problem to a development of what is going to solve the words, uh, the sin problem. And they are words of comfort. So turning your back. To Isaiah, well, you're in 39, you just flip over a page, look at uh, 
maybe not even that. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, because I'm rereading those verses, I want to revisit that idea. She's received double for her sins. That doesn't mean that for every sin of Israel, she had to pay back twofold. What it means is that the forgiveness, the solution to the problem perfectly matched the sin itself. So if I take this piece of fabric this ta- uh, that fits on the communion table and I fold it over, I've doubled it. It perfectly matches side to side. So Israel's sin is doubled over. It is perfectly matched by God's solution. There's nothing not matched by God's solution. That's what he means to be saying in chapter 40. And they are words of comfort. And in these chapters, 40 to 66, oftentimes the way Isaiah Isaiah speaks, it's called a prophetic present tense. Isaiah speaks as if this is happening right now, and it's not happening right now. But the way the, the reason why the Lord keeps speaking like this is because it is so guaranteed to happen. It is so sure to happen, it, he can speak as if it has already happened. So in chapter 40 and verse 1, and it says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her, her warfare has ended. It hasn't even started yet. Babylon's not even going to build up siege ramps against Jerusalem for a hundred years. But God is so sure, his purposes are so settled that he's got words of comfort for her. He can speak this as if it's happening now. And this happens all through those last 27 chapters. That may help uh, a time or two when we encounter the way things are said in Isaiah moving forward. So, all of this has to do with God's providence. This fits very nicely with the American Gospel video series that emphasized a similar word, God's sovereignty. God's providence is an important word in Isaiah. What the Lord wants Israel, his people to know, is he is a God who rules providentially. He is a God who rules sovereignly. He makes that very clear over and over and over again, and there are good reasons why, which we will explore. Let's start with James Montgomery Boyce, who I realized, uh, if I were, I mean, he lived less than I am old right now, which is a really sad thought to me. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce was a particularly wonderful individual. I only heard him speak once in person. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for a good long while, He followed another guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was an early radio preacher, and he was one of the good guys. But uh, James Montgomery Boyce was just a brilliant individual who had this deep, grovelly voice, uh, which was very unique to him. He was a very powerful speaker. He uh, authored a good number of books. He was a Bible commentator, uh, uh, just a, a delightful individual, a gift of Christ to his church. But James Montgomery Boyce did a, he's lots of books, but he has a book called Foundations of the Christian Faith. So kind of a, a basic Christian theology book. And regarding the word providence, he makes this statement. There is probably no point 
at which the Christian doctrine of God comes more into conflict with contemporary worldviews than in the matter of God's providence. So he's saying God's providence really goes against contemporary worldviews. I don't think he just means contemporary worldviews out there. I think he means God's providence is a struggle for contemporary worldviews that are brought in with us. Because we're affected by our contemporary world culture. We're affected by Babylon. And then when I read in the Bible about God's providence as a Christian, I can struggle with that. That's what James Montgomery Boyce means. So we need to delve just a little bit more into what do we mean by providence. I'm going to turn to another theology book, one that you probably aren't familiar with. But if you work in Good News Club, you probably are. This book is called The Ology Book. So it's a theology book, The Ology Book for Children. And it has a section, a chapter, a lesson on God's providence. It describes God's providence as God is in control. That's God's providence. Isaiah means to tell his people, God is in control. But you don't understand. The Babylonians are going to build siege ramps against Jerusalem. God is in control. You don't understand. They're going to tear down the walls, reduce them to rubble. God is in control. You don't understand. They're going to destroy Solomon's temple. God is in control. You don't understand. They're going to take us into exile. God is in control. That's providence. The ology book then explains it this way. From the grain of sand tossed by the ocean waves to the stars in the far reaches of the universe... God, like the conductor of an orchestra, is at work directing each part of his creation. Nothing moves without his command, and nothing happened outside his control. He commands every rain shower and every snowfall. He tells the flower buds to bloom and the ocean waves to roll. No one, not even the angels in heaven, can stop, I added, or alter, can stop or alter God's work in our world. Every minute of every day, God holds the universe together by the word of his power. God is keeping his creation steady so that everything works together according to his plan. That's providence. That's providence, I think, accurately described in the ology book. And James Montgomery Boyce would share those sentiments, as would a long list of Bible theologians. That is providence. God is in control. So the first question is, what is the glorious reality of providence? What is the blessing of providence? It means for the believer, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who laid down his life. That's providence. We rest in providence because we know our future is secure and settled because it rests in God's providence. It doesn't rest in my performance. That's the beauty of providence. That's the assurance and the promise of providence. It's not just Romans 8. 
I could take you to Psalm 73, where the psalmist says essentially the same thing in a very poetic way. But it's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. God's people trust in God's providence, in God's control. Nothing is going to wreck God's purposes of salvation. The second question, what is the, quote, problem with providence? How could there be any problem with it? But there is. What is the problem with providence? The problem with providence is, I don't understand it. The problem with providence is it doesn't answer all my whys or all my hows. That's the problem with providence. I can't trace the hand of God. I can't see and know how all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. I can't always understand that. There's times I simply have to trust in, he said that is true. I don't know how it's true in this situation, but because he said it, it has to be true. That's providence. And that's the problem. Israel is struggling with the providence of God, the control of God, the goodness of God. There is a beautiful song written by William Cooper that has to do with the providence of God. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a very famous song that I don't know, and I'm not a song leader. So um, William Cooper, by the way, probably his most well-known song is There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. That's his most well-known song. He was a man that had a lot of, uh, he struggled emotionally in a lot of ways, William Cooper. I think he was a friend of John Newton. Together they collaborated on a very famous hymn book called Only Hymns. But uh, he wrote this song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. There would be a certain beauty just to read the lyrics because they are so powerful. And it so captures the mystery of providence the struggle that we have with providence, but I think we can sing it because I've put it to a patriotic song that I'm hoping that you do know, and that song is America the Beautiful. So we're going to sing God Moves in a Mysterious Way to the tune America the Beautiful. Let's everybody stand. So now let's, with that introduction, let's build and head towards chapter 48 in particular. The outline of Isaiah chapter 48 I gave you last week. I've embellished it just a little bit, and I've changed one little part. So in chapter 48, where we're at in Isaiah, next week we will skip ahead to chapter 54, because we've already done 49 to 53. But in chapter 48, we are talking about defining the relationship. The Lord is defining His relationship with His people. Because when you're in a relationship, you have that moment where you have that We need to define where this relationship is and where it is going. It's just part of working through the stages of a relationship. So it starts off where we were last week in those first 11 verses. The Lord defines the relationship in the present moment. What does it look like right now? And then the second half of Isaiah, where we are this morning, the Lord defines the relationship moving forward. Here's where we are. Here's looking at our relationship moving forward. Now, the way we looked at it last week, we juxtaposed Jacob's hypocrisy and treachery up against the Lord's covenant faithfulness and mercy. The Lord says, when I look at our relationship, the Lord in Israel, the Lord says, 
You've been deceitful. You've been treacherous. You've been idolatrous. You've been hypocritical. You really don't worship me at all. You're just trying to use me as if you're the God and I'm here to suit you like a genie in a bottle. By contrast, the Lord says, I've been completely upfront with you. I've been transparent. I've told you exactly what was going to happen, how it was going to happen and why. It's not been a mystery. I haven't, I haven't dealt treacherously with you. Those are the first 11 verses. Now in the second half, verses 12 to 22, moving forward, it starts off with the relationship's foundation, verses 12 to 17. And then the Lord makes an urgent appeal in verses 18 to 21. And then it ends with a dire warning in verse 22. So in just a moment, we're going to skip ahead and look up, look at the relationship's foundation. To have a relationship with God, a, found, a foundational relationship with God, what does it build upon? What does it look like? What do you start with? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to point out that chapter 48 emphasizes hearing and listening. If you've, and I hope you have read Isaiah chapter 48 already, you will notice that time and again, it actually occurs ten times, though it is mostly lost in your Bible translation. Ten times the Lord is talking about listening. Hear this. Pay attention. So the question is, what is hearing? What does it look like? When the Lord tells his people, I want you to hear this, what is he asking them to do? What he is not asking them to do, not asking is, can you repeat back what I just said to you? Because that's what they're doing now and it's hypocritical. They can repeat back to God what God has told them. They can repeat the the famous Jewish Shema, which is the verb that's used for hearing. It means to hear. It's in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Shema. The the Jews could repeat that. They, They heard it. They could say it. But they weren't hearing it. Because in the Bible, when you hear something, it doesn't mean, can you repeat back to me what I've told you? It's not like a parent says to a child, now repeat back what I just told you. They might be able to do that, but that doesn't mean it's going to affect their life. It doesn't mean they're going to comply with it. It doesn't mean they're going to be obedient. It doesn't mean they're going to change their attitude or their behavior. It just means they can tell you what you said. Hearing in the Bible means, I know what you've said, and I now am going to comply and change my behavior or my attitude to to reflect what you've said. That's hearing in the Bible. Secondly, if I'm not listening to God, who am I most likely listening to? The Lord tells his people, I want you to hear this. If, by application, I'm not listening to God, or you're not listening to God, and there's times we do this every day, or every week, if you're a Wesleyan, uh, who are we listening to? Is it our friends? Is it our peers? Is it what we see on whatever our, 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 our chosen a way of getting information and news. Is that who we're listening to? Is it our culture? Who are we listening to if we're not listening to God? Because we are listening to somebody. Are we listening to our culture? In Isaiah's terms, it would, you could all wrap that all up and say, if we're not listening to God, we're listening to Babylon. The world is Babylon. 
The world has got an opinion about everything, including religion, including God, including sin, guilt, and hell, including forgiveness and reconciliation, including everything. The world has an opinion. And God is saying, I want you to listen to what I have to say because kingdoms rise and fall. They come and go. I don't change. God is the standard for anything that he has to say. And he's telling his people to listen. I will tell you who you listen to most of all, if it's not God. And probably even if it is God, because I know my own nature, I don't want to project that on you. But I can tell you probably who we listen to most of all, and a psychologist would tell you the same thing, it's yourself. We self-talk all the time, just all the time. We are talking to ourselves. And what we tell ourselves, we're getting from somewhere else, but I'm talking to myself all the time. What God wants me to do is talk to myself based upon what he's already said. That's the right kind of self-talk. I'm telling myself reminding myself what God has already said is true. Probably the most famous verse for Christians in this regard would be Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like Babylon, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For me to change my self-talk, I have to change the way I think. I have to change what I know. I have to change. I'm being exposed to what the world thinks All the time, just because you get out and about. You can't help but be exposed to what the world thinks. What God is saying is you've got to be exposed to what I think so you can change your thinking. And if you're changing your thinking, you're you're transforming your mind, you will talk to yourself differently than if you're only taking in information from Babylon, from the world. Now, let's build to the foundation of the relationship moving forward. The Lord and his people Israel. Starts off like this in verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. We looked at those two names last week because they started off in verse 1. They now pick up in the second half of the chapter in verse 12. He says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. Uh, We're talking about the same nation of people. Jacob is a name that reflects their deceitfulness, their treachery. Jacob is the old man. Jacob is the idolatrous man. Jacob is the one who's always trying to manipulate things to his own advantage. And he's pretty good at it. He's pretty good at it. Listen to me, Jacob, you treacherous, deceitful one. And then he refers to him as Israel, because Israel reflects Jacob's relationship with God, being in a covenant relationship with this God who is faithful, who's merciful, who's forgiving, but who's also just and holy. So this speaks more of the relationship by virtue of God's covenant. This speaks of more Jacob left to himself, what he looks like. So listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, which is important. The only reason why this relationship between the Lord and Israel or the Lord and Jacob exists is because the Lord has called Israel has called Jacob. It's not because Jacob is not deceitful. It's not because Jacob has somehow shown himself meritorious or worthy or honorable. None of those things are true. The reason why there's this relationship is simply because the Lord called Jacob. 
Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated, in both Genesis and Romans. So he's the Lord of eternity. He's letting Israel know, I'm the Lord of eternity, the first and the last. Nations rise and fall, kings come and go, it'll be Babylon, then it'll be the Medes and the Persians, then it'll be the Greeks, then it'll be the Romans. Right now, America's a pretty big deal, China's a pretty big deal in the East. Nations rise and fall, but the Lord says, I was there from the beginning and I'll be there when it's all over with too. The only constant is no nation, no form of government, no perfect economic system, No particular political party. I am the Lord, the first and the last. That's the foundation of a pretty good relationship. Secondly, verse 13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Defining this relationship, the Lord says, I'm not only the Lord of eternity, I'm the Lord of creation. I was there before I ever spoke the worlds into existence. But guess what? Those worlds that are in existence are there because of me. I created the heavens and I created the earth. This relationship that the Lord has with his people, Jacob, Israel, is a relationship with the Lord of eternity and the Lord of all of creation. That's the basis of this relationship. Now, he wants them to put two and two together. I've only got... Two points up there, but you get the concept. Based upon what the Lord has already revealed, he wants Israel to do something. The do something is this. Assemble all of you and listen. Listen. Who among them has declared these things? Who among all your false prophets, who among all your idols, who among all the nations of the earth can lay claim that I'm the first and the last? I'm the one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. Who among them can declare these things? Israel's relationship with God, with the Lord, is unique in that it it didn't start with them, it started with the Lord. Religion starts with people. Religion is, what do we imagine God to be like? And sometimes people say that. Well, my God wouldn't do that. And you know what? Your God probably wouldn't. But the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is from before the beginning and will be there in the end, isn't a God conjured up in my mind. He's the God who is. And so regarding this God, he has to declare himself. If he doesn't declare himself, we're left with all of our idols. But he declares himself. And what he declares is his character. And he declares his providence to Israel. Who am I? I've declared to you, I'm the Lord of all eternity. I'm the Lord of all creation. And he's declaring his providence, his I am in control to his people Israel. God's providence fully understood by Israel. It's the same problem we have. I don't understand all the whys, and I don't understand all the the hows. It's just a, a mystery to me. So God has declared things to Israel. He's declared his intentions, but he hasn't answered all their questions. And so they, it still requires faith. I think Warren Wearsby was the first person I heard that gave a de- definition of faith, something along the lines of, God makes faith a most reasonable thing. 
Faith is not unreasonable. Sometimes, especially secular people, sometimes have the idea that a Christian has blind faith. No reason to believe what you believe. It's just blind faith. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is reasonable. But there are enough unanswered questions so as to still require faith. God will never answer all of our questions so that we don't have to simply trust in what he said is true. He's given us reason to trust, but he doesn't answer all the questions. God's providence is both on a macro level and a micro level. Macro meaning big, micro meaning small. God is in control means what he said in verse 13, and I'm not there, in verse 13 when he said, My hand laid the foundation of the earth, my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. God didn't say, let there be light. I said, let there be light. He didn't have to try it two or three times. God didn't have to try two or three times to create what he chose to create on any given day. What God said happened. And God orders the heavens and the earth to this day. They hold together by the might of his power and the person of his character. They only exist because he exists. If God ceases to exist, nobody's here. This all implodes. That's the macro level. The micro level is, and I'm also in control of a Persian named Cyrus the Great, who isn't even going to come on world history for 150-some years, but he's my man. And it looks like this in verse 14. The Lord loves him. And this person, this Cyrus, who we've been introduced before, he shall perform, I think this his is capitalized. I think it's the Lord's purpose. Commentators are divided. I think the arguments seem best to refer to the Lord. So the Lord loves him, Cyrus the Persian, and Cyrus the Persian shall perform the Lord's purpose on Babylon. And Cyrus's arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I've brought him, and he will prosper in his way. The Lord has declared this to his people. And God's providence is scandalous to Israel. Because right now, when Isaiah is speaking these words, they've still got Jerusalem, and they've still got the temple. And and the economy is doing pretty well. And the standard of living is pretty high. And for them to recognize God's providence in this means, so you're telling me the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy everything. They're going to take us into exile. And you're raising up some pagan heathen king called Cyrus who's going to allow us to return. And the Lord's like, yeah, you got that. Because I'm in control. And this is my good purpose for you. Because I'm the Lord of eternity and I'm the Lord of creation. They don't like God's anointed. And they don't like that God says he loves a pagan Persian by the name of Cyrus. Well, if if they don't like Cyrus the Persian, they're sure not going to like when God comes himself in the person of his son. And he's going to be the the foundation stone of God's purposes of of redemption and salvation. They're going to reject that purpose too. They're going to reject that anointed one too. They're going to reject that one whom whom the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God's purposes 
are scandalous to Israel. That's a problem. The Lord says in verse 16, Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I've been there. I'm telling you, this this is on the record books. (laughs) This isn't up for debate. All this is going to happen because of who I am. And nobody can thwart God's purposes or stop his hand. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognized that after he'd lived like an animal for seven years. And then you have a very, very curious statement at the end of verse 16, which I take as an early statement of the servant of the Lord, who is going to be the answer to all of these problems. Now the servant of the Lord speaks at the end of verse 16, and, and he says, And now the Lord God has sent me into his spirit. And who that servant of the Lord is, is increasingly revealed in the chapters that follow. This servant of the Lord is going to be a stand-in for the nation of Israel. This servant of the Lord is going to live in perfect obedience like Israel didn't. This servant of the Lord is going to suffer and die, but he's going to be exalted and rewarded. This servant of the Lord is not only going to redeem Israel, he's going to bring the Gentile nations to him as well. That's this servant of the Lord. So I think that's an early reference which then will be unpacked in the chapters that follow, which we've technically already looked at. An urgent appeal is made in verses 17 to 21. Right now, we have he's the Lord of eternity and the Lord of creation, which is kind of impersonal, and there's nothing you can do about it. But because the Lord is defining his relationship with Israel, he wants them to know that he's not only transcendent, he's also personal and imminent and in relationship with them. So, the point is this. The Lord's providence toward Israel is good and gracious and merciful. He is in control, but to Israel... It's a control that results in what is good for them. What will bring grace to them. What will bring mercy to them. The Jeremiah passage is a a famous passage. It's their famous verses. You're probably familiar with them. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those are verses Christians like to claim, and by principle, that's true. If, if you're a believer, if, if you're in Christ, God's plan for you is good and gracious, but it originally applies to Israel. And the Lord is saying, you're going to go into exile. Your life as you know it now is going to be completely destroyed, but I know the plans I have for you, and they're good. I, I know the plans I have, and they're gracious, and they're merciful. That's, that's how all this fits together. Verse 17, thus says the Lord. I'm not just the Lord of eternity and the Lord of creation. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your, your God. Not the Philistines' God. Not the Babylonians' God. Not the Assyrians' God. I'm the Lord, your God. And then he says, who teaches you to profit? Who leads you 
in the way that you should go. All of this is, is just steeped in how personal and caring and loving he is to his treasured people. Because he called them, out of all the nations of the earth, he called Israel to be a, a nation unto himself. They're his people. Redeemer and Holy One. We've seen that combination once before in the chapters that we've done. They seem at odds with one another because the Lord is saying, the Lord of eternity, the Lord of creation says, I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one who saves you. I'm the one who forgives you. I'm the one who will make you new. But he's also holy. And how can they be made, uh, how can they be forgiven and redeemed and God not compromise his own holiness? And that's where the servant of the Lord is going to solve this problem. So that Paul in Romans chapter 3 says that he's, the Lord is both just and the justifier. He's both holy and righteous and the one who makes righteous. God can make sinners righteous without compromising his own righteousness. And that's all accomplished in, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches you. He leads you in the way that you should go. All of this is saying the problem is not with what the Lord has done in the relationship. He teaches them well. He leads them well. The problem isn't that he's... The problem isn't like when I get instructions and sometimes I have no idea what they're talking about. And sometimes they're just pictures and not words, which makes it even worse for me. I need pictures and words and then I got about a 50-50 chance of having some idea how to assemble whatever it is I'm supposed to be assembling. I don't find those things easy or enjoyable. Jonathan does stuff like that. He doesn't read instructions. He just does it. Uh, but at any rate, the problem isn't with the Lord's commandments. The problem is with Israel. That's where this whole process breaks down. He's the Lord of eternity, the Lord of creation. He's Redeemer. He's holy. He's their God. He's teaching and leading them. But they're blind and deaf. All that God has done is so lost on them, left to themselves. Verse 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And then it goes through three or four blessings. Blessings of Abraham. If you had only paid attention, you would have received all that I promised to Abraham if you'd only listened, if you'd only heeded what I told you. What I've been telling you for centuries now, if you'd only paid attention, your peace would have been like a river. This uh, reminds of Psalm 81, speaks to exactly the same sentiment, the same pouring out of God. If only things could have been so different if you'd only listened. Luke 19, Jesus, uh, the week before he's going to die on a cross, is going into Jerusalem and he captures sight of the city. And he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stoned the prophets, if only you'd heeded me, if you'd only listened to my commandments, if you'd only known the day of your visitation, if you'd only known who I was. But they didn't. They didn't recognize Christ for who he was. And Israel, way back in Isaiah chapter 48, they weren't paying attention back then either. So now we've got these very intriguing comparisons. And this is, uh, I really didn't see a commentator explore this to my satisfaction. So this is my own wrestling through this, which means 
If you give me 50-50 odds that I may be onto something, that's probably about as most as I can hope for. So take it for what it's worth. This is the way I got it figured out. You've got the Lord who is in control. And in verse 13, he who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, when he gives them a command, they obey. Heavens and earth in verse 13. All of the heavens, all of the earth are waiting to do whatever God commands them to do. You've got Cyrus, a pagan Persian ruler, who's who's going to exactly accomplish God's purposes in Babylon. A pagan ruler. And then you've got Israel, who is stubborn as a jackass, and they're not about to budge. How is it the heavens and the earth obey, that Cyrus the Persian obeys, and Israel is stubborn... Whoops. Stubborn as that... Oh, that's right. Sorry. That's not right. There. How is it that Israel is resting on their laurels, stubborn and unwilling to obey or heed, pay attention to God's commandments? And I think the difference is this. Israel was tasked with something much greater than what the heavens and the earth were tasked with doing. And Israel is tasked... The word is tasked with doing something far greater than what Cyrus the Persian was given. Israel is given the task of being a covenant to the Gentile nations. Israel is tasked with being a light to the Gentiles. Israel is tasked with where we started off this whole worship service, be holy as I am holy. That's the charge of Israel. But Israel's not holy. They're blind and they're deaf. Israel is not changed from the inside out. Israel is treacherous and Israel is deceitful. Israel cannot do what they are tasked with doing by God. And so God is going to provide a substitute called the servant, called Christ Jesus, who will accomplish what Israel cannot accomplish on their behalf. In verse 20, The Lord gives a charge, a call, and a command. In verse 21, there's the Lord's assurance. This is all in a very limited time frame. In other words, in verses 20 and 21, it's the idea that you're going to leave Babylon. I'm not going to leave you in Babylon. Go out of Babylon. And remember, I led my people out of Egypt too, and I gave them water from a rock and streams of water. I took care of my people. I've always done that. They will leave Babylon... But leaving Babylon isn't going to solve their sin problem. The sin problem is solved in chapters that follow when the servant of the Lord lays down his life for his sheep. That solves the sin problem. And then there's a dire warning in verse 22, which reads, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. No peace. Oh, that you, if you'd heeded my commandments, there would have been peace. There would have been shalom. But there is no peace for the wicked. And Israel's left, blind and deaf, in need of a substitute, and they're left without peace. In verse 22. Now, what are your comments and questions? Rod. I've oh, chapter 42, verse 6. Chapter 42, verse 6 says, and because I think the original servant of the Lord in 42 is Israel, 
He's already been defined as Jacob in Israel. In 42 verse 6, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So the Lord's revealed plan from the beginning is that Israel would be a chosen people, They would so reflect the Lord's character and goodness and glory that they would be a light to the nations. And all peoples of the earth would be drawn to the true and living God because they they see Israel. But the problem was Israel never looked holy and righteous and good. That was the breakdown. So they've got to have, somebody has to stand in to be that person that Israel was meant to be. There's also a passage, an interesting passage in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 19 and maybe verse 6, where the Lord says, I've made you a kingdom of priests. See, we recognize rightly there were 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes was the priestly tribe. And the priestly tribe, the Levites, ministered to all the other 11 tribes. But if you take it one step past that, the plan is that it wouldn't be one tribe ministering to 11 tribes, it would be the entire nation of Israel being a priestly tribe, ministering to all the Gentiles. But the problem was Israel was deaf and blind. So that's so Christ Jesus does, fulfills the task that was given to Israel from the beginning. That's a great question. Somebody else? Cindy. So in what sense did God love Cyrus? That's... That's, and, and commentators, the way they basically answer that question is, I loved him because he exactly ful- accomplished what I gave him to accomplish. There's, nobody argues that Cyrus was in a, a saved relationship with the Lord God of Israel. But he loved him in that he completely fulfilled exactly the task that was given him. Lori. Yeah, the question has something to do with the idea of We've got passages that talk, speak of God's love. You've got passages that speak of God's not loving or hating. How does all that fit together? Here's, here's what uh, I was taught or discovered, how it all came together a good number of years ago. Because this is a famous, it's a kind of a famous question, right? You know, uh, one of the famous sayings in Christian church is, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. The only problem with that is there are numerous places in the Bible where God makes, is very explicitly says, I hate the workers of iniquity. I hate sinners. The Bible, the Bible's pretty plain on that. The Bible's also pretty plain that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I think the answer is God loves sinners and God hates sinners. I think that's the answer. I think if you try to say it one and not the other, you're only picking half of what the Bible says. I think all of the world benefits from God's love. Adolf Hitler benefited from God's love. He, he enjoyed God's sunshine. He enjoyed beautiful music. He enjoyed a fine meal. He enjoyed whatever family he had. Every sinner benefits from God's love. But that doesn't mean every sinner is saved from his sin. But every sinner does benefit from God's love. And, and every sinner abides under the wrath of God, which is stayed until... Christ comes back in power and glory, and sinners who are unrepentant are judged for their sin. I think both are true. So there's a sense, I think I could make an argument for the, whatever sinner you want to pick out, 
God, in some sense, Jesus looked on the rich young ruler who went away without eternal life, and Mark's gospel says Jesus looked on him and loved him. Because there are some people that say God doesn't love, God only loves those who come to faith in Christ. I think God loves the world. I think he hates workers of iniquity. And I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to choose between the two. And there are good reformed people that believe that, by the way. It's, it's not anti-reformed. Anybody else? Anybody else? 